This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. It's time we accept bad weather as a vital natural resource, one we as a nation should be proud of. Welcome to a wild ride into necrocapitalism, cutting observations by Greek scientist and author George Sacraclides. Then more worrying news about methane. Frozen under the deep sea around pretty well every continent, methane can melt, migrate, and release closer to shore. We talk through this new discovery from petroleum geologist and pro-vice-chancellor of Newcastle University, Professor Richard Davies. It all wraps up with my short take on French situationalist Guy Debord and Society of the Spectacle. You are living in it. I'm Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. It's green, see? A green fix should last a long time. May we intrude into your bubble? Is reality in crisis? It is time for George Sacraclides and his new book, In the Grip of Necrocapitalism. May we intrude into your bubble? Is reality in crisis? It is time for George Sacraclides and his new book, In the Grip of Necrocapitalism. George is a scientist and author. From somewhere outside the Matrix, George reports back from the dark finality of these times. From Greece, George Sacralides, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Happy to be here. Great to meet you, Alex. Before we get to your book, George, where are you in Greece, and has climate change brought fresh disasters to your country? I'm based in northern Greece. We've had, as you know, our share of floods and a very big forest fire that wiped out a record expanse of, you know, virgin, very ancient forest. Um, aside from that, I mean, we just have the, the old event here and there that tends to be more pronounced than historically, just as um, the rest of the world. Yes, it is January here in Canada. We still haven't had any snow. It can't even get below freezing uh, during the night. So it's absolutely bizarre. It's the same in the United States. It really is unbelievably hot. For It's a winter heat wave. That's what it is. Yeah, we, we're having a very, very mild winter, which people are finding quite enjoyable, uh, people that are not in tune with the climate crisis. So uh, we we have an average of about 16, sometimes even 17 degrees as the day's high. We've had that for a few weeks now, and that is very unusual. Usually that's as high as it gets, and that's in, in, a, in a, a number of days during in January usually, which represents an oddity that the ancient Greeks had come up with the name for, uh, calling it the, the Halcyon Days. Well, it's been Halcyon Days for um, quite several weeks now, and I'm, I'm worried about my tulip bulbs, actually. <laughs> your tulip bulbs, exactly. Okay, let's get to your book. You introduce your latest book as a post-mortem. What died? Yeah, it's a, I guess it's a very dark characterization. We have to, and I think 2023 has been the year where the mainstream is 
accepting that we are now on a road which is inevitable. The economic model that the world is following is um, not only unsustainable, is unstoppable. You know, people can't even get together in a conference and decide to, to cut emissions here and there. So uh, the theme of, of the book in the grip of necrocapitalism really dwells into this inevitability and asks the questions, why is it that it is inevitable? Um, and I think the answer is, is quite a dark one. It's that we're not really in charge. No one is in charge. No one is in charge of this vehicle that's heading for the cliff. Well, many of us do feel something bad is going on. It's it's hidden by a fog of fake news and social lies we tell ourselves and, and too many cat videos. Just to see where we are in this landscape, you develop new terms like psychonomy. What does that mean? Hmm. I was looking for a term to describe the kind of economic system which has brought us here, which is a self-destructive system. So this economy is essentially an economic system which draws its, its power from converting the worst of mental health disorders into ingenious corporate skills. And it's, it's this concept which sort of explains our world in many ways. You know, we think of really driven people as successful people. And we think of kind of quiet, passive, balanced people who have not much ambition. We see them as losers. while in fact, they are the ones with a healthy mind. And the psychonomy is essentially the masking of all these mental health disorders into skills which become very specialized, very specific, and they form a, an intricate web between different people who have different kinds of these mental disorders. Some of them are the sort of exploiting narcissists, others are the victims, and they all need each other. And out of all this web of exploitation and mental disorder on, upon which all these, you know, mental disorders are, are fed, you get a very, very strong psychonomy. You get the movement of goods. You get the consumer addictions. You get the drive of the obsessed CEOs to maintain the bottom line and maintain their profits. So they're actually making money by making us less happy, generating negative emotions in the population. And, and you covered this in your earlier book, The Unhappiness Machine. That's very correct. Yeah, I can see you've done some back reading. The Unhappiness Machine was essentially looking at this, how the creation of desires and obsessions in the consumer. Um, you know, the more unhappy we can make people, the more we can convince them that they all need a Rolls Royce and a huge uh, home. Uh, and the more we can tell them that they are unhappy, their life is unhappy, then that is the basis for not just the psychonomy, but for, a you know, a very kind of growth-based, aggressive, uh, destructive and self-destructive economic system. 
Yeah, I don't feel so good. I might feel better if I had the running shoes of my favorite sports star or uh, the latest uh, kitchen appliance, and that's what I'm really longing for. When I get that, I'll feel better. That's sort of how it works. Anyway, so you're basically saying we've been colonized by a system that we created, and it feeds on our basic weaknesses and blind spots, and in fact, it, it goes further. It encourages our weaknesses and blind spots. Is that it? It does. It does. I mean, this is what the unhappiness machine basically uncovered this very elaborate, intricate system of, you know, this marriage between religion, marketing, the, uh, you know, the production machine, colonialism to create the unhappiness, which is then monetized and very often weaponized. But what my new book is exploring is the the actual mechanics and the nature of that system. The main idea being that it, it is unstoppable and it is it is sentient in a way. In even you know putting my biology hat on, you can even make arguments as to its uh, existence as a life form. You know, it is able to propagate itself, and it is able to to grow itself in very very intelligent ways. So while while many of us might think that we are in charge of this civilization, we are in charge of this economy. You know, we make decisions. The CEOs they make decisions. The consumers, they make decisions. So they, you know, they have a free will. They don't really, because in the grand scheme of things, looking from far above, what we've created is is an economic system supported by a political, a cultural, a social system that is made to sustain itself and not sustain humans. So what is really in charge of that vehicle that I described with such dark words in the beginning of this interview is profit, uh, which is an abstract concept, uh, which, however, is very tangible in terms of where this economic system is, is going. And the truth is, we can't stop it. We can't stop the cargo uh, going through the Suez Canal, we can't, we can't stop consumption. Everyone's too brainwashed. And the system of brainwashing, this unhappiness machine, is becoming more and more intelligent, more powerful. It is using tools uh, in the metaverse, in TikTok, in, in, in social media that are irresistible to humans, and it knows our psychology. You know, it's it's been almost 10 years now that uh, a company called Cambridge Analytica, which I'm sure you remember, was identified that was behind the, you know, influencing of, of uh, you know, Brexit and Trump. And of course, Russia was partly behind that. And that ability to micro-target people with the right message by knowing their psychology based on their digital footprint is absolutely frightening. And it's ironic that in the last couple of years, especially, you know, AI has gained such a, has become such a big conversation topic, but, 
you can argue that AI happened already 50 years ago in terms of this economic system that is uncontrollable. It was based on profit and profit is kind of an independent entity that sort of sustains itself. You can have people in a, in a board meeting in a company deciding whether to take the ethical decision or where to take the profit decision. And you can argue that each one of them individually has an ethical mind, but the end decision at board level is not going to be a human, an ethical decision. It's going to be a profit-based decision. And you end up calling this Uber system of power-seeking wealth as the thing. Is that right? Yes. I, I couldn't find a name for it. I didn't want to call it a biological organism. It's something that has never existed before on the planet. I guess the closest thing to it would be AI. But it is it is a web of systems and um, these exploitative relationships of the psychonomy of you know people needing to sell and either people needing to buy. That um, yeah, for now I just call it the thing. I think it sounds frighteningly appropriate. So the new normal includes absolutely never-before-seen heat records and violent storms and mega-fires and, and crazy stuff like a tornado in Greater Manchester, England. Yet you say the climate crisis will probably be completely forgotten in a few years. H how could that be? Well, I hope I'm wrong, but you can already see the way things are going. If you pay attention to what happened over 2023, we had, I would say, most people in the climate community say this was the defining year in terms of seeing palpable, tangible climate phenomena, uh, you know, temperatures that are, you know, objectively completely out of, you know, off the charts, whether you believe or you don't believe in climate change. Yet at the same time, every time an event happens, you notice how, you know, people became desensitized. And you see that, you know, I, I noticed that even in my, you know, my family environment, where you kind of try, try to raise something in the conversation and there's just a blank stare, which is an innate tendency of humans to just look away. It's a survival mechanism. And this is where some of the other essays in, in the latest book attempt to, to understand, especially from an evolutionary perspective, why we can be so ignorant. And the, well, the theory I've developed around that, the concept here is one of the mind prison, which is that we are the animal that is the most intelligent, quote unquote. But it is really that intelligence that is our enemy because our mind is so smart. It is able to create its own reality. It is able to tell itself that everything is white when actually everything is black. So it's, it's a concept that I, I keep exploring, but I think that Looking back on our history, you find quite a bit of support for that, given that there's around 83, 85 human civilizations in the past who have collapsed, and they collapsed 
pretty much aware of what they were doing, yet they still chose to do it because they 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 had a short termism to them that they had surrendered to. And this is where we are today. We are we are surrendering to the thing. I just you know the latest example of that, of course, being COP28, where all these leaders and politicians went, and most of them know how difficult the situation is and know that that was the absolute last chance we had to take some really, really difficult decisions. Yet they all looked after themselves and their reputation. You are listening to Radio Ecoshock. Alex Smith speaks with George Sakraklades about his book In the Grip of Necrocapitalism. George Sakraklades, what science did you study, and how did that help you escape the climate-only bubble to see the whole ecosphere in trouble? My education is actually quite scientific. I've got three degrees in the sciences. I studied chemistry, molecular biology, and food science. So it's very much rationalistic, scientific, quantitative. I guess it was later on in life that the you know the passion I had for ecology and for understanding the strange relationship with nature that brought it all together. I think my I think my scientific skills come handy in two ways. One is the uh, the biology side. You're able to look at ecology. Ecology is a very global sort of bird's eye view of systems. It's a it's a type of systems thinking really ecology. You can apply it to, to anything, not just organisms. And you can apply it to theories on economy as well, which is where my, my quantitative skills help me. So, you know, the paradox here being that you have economics and economy who are people who crunch numbers, yet almost all of them advocate unsustainable economic growth, the type of growth that simply does not compute. So what are they missing? They are missing the the, the bird's eye view, really. And that's what I um, I kind of endeavor to bring. The In the grip of necrocapitalism, it's kind of a difficult book to read because it does kind of bring together, it tries to bring together um, economics and psychology and biology and sort of compare, contrast them against each other. But in the end, what you get is, is an insight into the, um, I guess, the predicaments of human nature that are simply difficult, difficult to escape. We're pretty arrogant. We think that we can solve climate change. I think a lot of people still think it's possible. Yet looking at our past historically, all these collapsed civilizations, the way that we only think about the next 10 minutes of survival, the way that we're very short-termist, very selfish as politicians. Uh, And this psychonomic system that is just simply out of our hands and has been out of our hands for quite a few decades now, don't fill me with hope. (laughs) Early in your book, though, we find a lyrical tribute to the only true sustainable Earth, which is life on Earth. In several places, you attribute powers and intention to what you call the Ethernet of things, 
Do you believe in Gaia? I do believe in Gaia. I, I don't think you have to be either, um, you know, uh, an elf <laughs> or uh, or to be or, or a theologian to believe in Gaia. I, uh, I very often trip people up by by saying that Earth is sentient, and you can actually say it is sentient if you expand the definition of sentient or of sentience. Earth has uh, millions of clever cycles and processes by which it can monitor everything that's happening on a 24-hour basis. To me, this is like a very much, very expansive CCTV system. Any disturbance brings about a stimulus, which is then picked up by, you know, a cloud or, you know, then you get a hurricane, then you get rain, then you get everything communicates with everything else. And ironically, humans are part of the earth net of things. My point here being is that we're being watched. We are being watched by this planet and uh, it's simply a case of karma and action reaction this civilization is unsustainable and that is a a, a no-go on this planet um, this is a circular closed system and anything that is unsustainable any organism whether it is a human or a virus or or anything else that begins to exploit its environment beyond its means, you know, either by overpopulation or making many other species extinct, eventually is destroyed by the earth net of things. And not not because this earth net of things has a concept of ethics. No, it is simply a concept of action-reaction and physics, any big force within a closed system will have a big impact and will then, you know, lie down in its ashes and something else will, will come out of it. And I don't know if that made much sense, but um, there's, um, there's a lot more explanation in the book uh, about the, uh, the earth net of things and uh, in some other uh, essays as well. So from ice to forests, vast ecosystems are in crisis Yet you warn us not to expect a collapse anytime soon. Why is that? I try not to use the word collapse because I think it brings up different imagery to people. Uh, usually, I think, means something sudden to people. And it usually means that it's that the sort of like the world now, it, time is now divided into a pre-collapse and a post-collapse. And that's not true. I think that we are in a precipice at the moment, and we are in many ways. The climate is in free fall. I won't argue that. I think that we will now be witnessing on an annual basis um, and, you know, accelerating effects to the point where we, we, we would be able to very clearly say, this year is worse than last year, and last year was worse than the year before that. However, I, I try not to make predictions because you can have 50 shades of collapse. You can have, uh, for example, a nuclear war that could happen very, very quickly before even the planet heats up 
And that will be the end of, of you know, a lot of uh, great part of human civilization and nature. So, you know, that would be something that very few people predict. You know, this book's coming out about sea level rise and the heat that will kill you and all these things. So you could, you know, that would be the sort of slower path. And then the, you know, the faster one, I think, would involve humans themselves, ironically. Uh, we are capable of making things a lot worse for ourselves. And my, I guess my greatest uh, concern is that um, all our massive nuclear war is something that becomes a distinct possibility when you have hunger, when you have the collapse of supply chains and global trade, which makes states more secular, more fascist. I guess the question in my mind is, will, will they be able to convince, will the governments be able to convince their people that they need money for guns when they actually need money for food? It might be an easy decision when there is a you know, you know, nuclear bomb you know, breaking up here or there. And I think that we were very lucky with Hiroshima. It, it gave us another 60, 70 years of lifetime because Japan didn't have weapons at that point. If they did, they might have used them. And then, you know, you can't, you can't even imagine what, what could come next. We are very in a very different situation now. There's 8, eight billion of us uh, who have to eat every day. So it's a it's a massive burden that needs to be sustained every day. And this burden can collapse very, very easily, as we saw with the pandemic, you know, supply chains, you know, everything can collapse very easily. And this is um this is what the unhappiness machine uh, book was about. It's kind of the you know, ten ways in which we can collapse. And your book on eco capitalism, it's filled with novel words and ideas like consumatrons. Who are the consumatrons? <laughs> it's a bit of a. I've um, some of these words are a bit too much, and I was, I was. I can have to say I was having fun with language, and I needed to sometimes refer to to humans as um, as machines because they can be so asleep. So a consumatron is um, essentially a human who only exists to consume and cannot conceive themselves as existing without constant consumption. Um, so, you know, essentially they've been hijacked by the psychonomy and this, the thing, essentially. They've, uh, consumatrons are zombies, essentially. So the answer is stark. It is degrowth. And maybe that's a new profit opportunity for disaster capitalism, how do you picture degrowth unfolding, if it can? I think that degrowth is very, very difficult, very abstract for people. And mind you, degrowth has never been done. There's 80 or so civilizations who have collapsed, and it was never even attempted. So my, my view, and this is where I can make a prediction, is that degrowth will never happen. It won't happen. And before it can even happen, it will be enforced on us by this planet. 
So, you know, all this, uh, these droughts, these floods, the inflation on food, uh, you know, the, the, the system is beginning to collapse. And this, in a way, is, is a degrowth, but it is a very damaging degrowth. It's not the sort of degrowth that could have been thought out and planned to, in order to conserve as much as we can of, of the earth and of humanity. George, what else is on your mind that you would like to talk about? Oh, too many things. Too many things. I think these days I, I, I try to focus on myself after, you know, the, writing the book, uh, the latest book was very kind of uh, intense. The writing about negative things um, is, not, is not a great occupation to be under for the whole day. And I think that this, you know, what we are going through is in one way a collective experience, but it's also a very personal experience that each one of us has to sit with on, on their own and think about their own life and what it means to them, what is important to them. So this is what I do these days. I try to think, how do I want to spend um, the rest of my life? And um, is there a... Um, I guess that's the question. How can we minimize the effects of what's coming? George Sacralides, thank you for spending time with EcoShock listeners. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Alex Smith. George Sacralides is a multi-platform communicator. His books, all available on Amazon, include The Unhappiness Machine, and other stories about systemic collapse, uh, that was in 2023, A New Earth, his novella of the future, and Pocket Philosophy for End Times. George's latest book is In the Grip of Necrocapitalism. Follow George on Twitter or X under the handle at 99BlackBalloons. You can find links to all of this in my show blog at ecoshock.org. In George's voice... I hear echoes of the fantastic 1971 Firesign Theater audio play called I Think We're All Bozos on This Bus. As George's mentally enslaved consumers gawk at a faux futuristic theme park that is life. That Firesign Theater album is available on YouTube or find a link in my show blog published Wednesdays, late Pacific time. Even more, though, George's writing reminds me of Guy Debord in his 1967 book, The Society of the Spectacle. After new science on methane escapes under the sea with Professor Davies, you will hear my 10-minute introduction to Guy Debord. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Huge amounts of the super-warming gas methane lie frozen at the bottom of the sea. They are called clathrates. If they thaw and escape, a hothouse world surely results. New science finds even methane buried deep in the seabed can get out. The paper, published October 2023 in Nature Geoscience, is titled Long-Distance Migration and Venting of Methane from the base of the hydrate stability zone. From Newcastle University, we are joined by the Pro Vice Chancellor, Global and Sustainability, and lead author of the study, 
Dr. Richard Davies. Richard Davies, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. We are going to talk about warming gases below the seabed, a thousand or more feet below the surface. Humans never see that. Uh, We wouldn't know it was there. How did your team discover this methane? We've known about the methane for, (coughs) for decades. It's been detected from the 1970s onwards when seismic reflection data, when you send a sound wave into the Earth, the sound wave gets bounced back off the base of the methane because it's, it's something, uh, it's, it's a boundary where there is a change in density and velocity and the sound waves bounce back. So you can detect them. You can detect this, uh, this hydrate reservoir um, around the world. But what I did uh, during 2020, during lockdown, uh, I'd had a number of PhD students studying uh, this seismic data offshore Mauritania. But uh, in 2020, after a decade of looking at the data, I dusted it off and started looking at it again because we were in lockdown in the United Kingdom. And I made this remarkable discovery of these giant pot marks, big craters on the seabed, or just underneath the seabed, which were evidence of methane escape. So the the basic technique is to look at seismic data, we call it. It's three-dimensional. It's a huge data set offshore of Mauritania, and it provides a layer-by-layer sort of picture of what's going on offshore Mauritania, where these hydrate reservoirs are, are located. And what we have evidence for is that they're melting when you warm the ocean. It is wild and ironic that a drive by fossil fuel companies to find more warming gases paid the very high costs of mapping what lies below the sea. And you even found strange little volcano shapes, as you mentioned, hidden in the layers of the seabed. Do we know what caused them? Yes, I, I totally agree. I mean, the oil and gas industry acquires this data at vast cost, and then it's academics and students who get to pore over it and to use it to understand the Earth and understand processes. And so it can be put to good use. The giant craters, we've seen giant craters on the seabed before. The ones that we discovered or I discovered in 2020 were, are about a kilometre wide, about 50 metres deep. And we've seen these before, and they form usually due to methane bubbling up to the seabed. And as it hits the seabed, the methane just pulls up and trains some of the soft sediment into the water column. And just slowly, bit by bit, bubble by bubble, erodes a crater. Now, if the crater is a kilometre wide and 50 metres deep, it suggests that a lot of gas has escaped from this particular region offshore of Mauritania. And so these pot marks, as we call them, are very distinctive things that we've seen on seismic data for the last 20 years. And um, when I saw them, I knew pretty quickly, yes, instinctively, that this was evidence of a significant, as I called it, massive venting of, of, of gas, probably methane. Because, of course, <clears throat> what I also knew is just in the deeper water, a few tens of kilometers away, was a very significant hydrate reservoir which was susceptible to melting when the climate warmed. And the climate has warmed over the last 20,000 years. Are these pockmarks, as you say, currently venting methane, or is this something that happened in the long past? One or two of them are still at the seabed. So when you look at the images, you can see on the seismic reflection data that some are buried by 
up to 80 metres of sediment, and one or two are at the seabed. That doesn't mean they're active now, but it, it suggests they may be. The only way of telling exactly when these features form is to go to drill them. And sometimes in the bases of these craters, you find carbonate concretions, uh, basically carbonate growths, and those carbonates have grown there because of the venting methane, and you can date the growths, therefore date the methane. So we don't know exactly when they formed, but because they're only buried by 80 metres of sediment, they formed probably in the last one million years, some of them possibly active right now. What are the estimates for the amount of methane buried under the sea, and how does that compare to greenhouse gases in the atmosphere now? Okay, well, I haven't looked at the amount of greenhouse gas, uh, methane greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, but I can tell you that the estimates for the amount that's trapped in, uh, of carbon trapped in methane hydrates has varied significantly over the years. And overall, over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, perhaps 20 years, actually, the estimates have gone down. Uh, so they've, they started this as very large estimates. It's now estimated about 1,800 gigatons of carbon are trapped in, <coughs> in methane hydrates, whereas oil and gas is about 5,000 gigatons. So it's smaller than oil and gas underground, but it's still a very, very big source of carbon. The difference between methane hydrates under the ocean and oil and gas is that we cannot control the leak of, meth of gas from methane hydrates. Of course, we can control what comes out of an oil well by not producing the oil. There's been a lot of worry about methane bubbling up from the shallow seas north of Siberia in the Arctic. But frozen methane is found along many coastlines, and here you are working off the coast of Africa. So how widely distributed are these class rates? Well, they pretty much go around every continent of, of planet Earth. Uh, when you get, I mean, obviously varies depending on the water temperature, but generally speaking, between about 450 metres to 700 metres, there is a zone where the pressure and temperature are just suitable for methane hydrate to exist just below the seabed. And when it's just below the seabed, of course, any temperature changes at the seabed make this hydrate vulnerable. So there's a rim all, pretty much around most continents. So oceans are warming around the world. We know that. They're setting new records for at least as long as we've been able to measure them. Is that what is causing methane to escape from the seabed, or are there other factors possibly at play? No, the dominant factor is increasing the temperature of the seabed, and this has been detected on the east coast of the United States, and it's also been detected around Spitsbergen in the Arctic Circle. In fact, the melting of hydrates in Spitsbergen, offshore from Spitsbergen, is thought to be related possibly to seasonal changes in temperature. Now, on the uh, east coast of the United States, there's papers published in the last decade which have suggested that melting of hydrates is caused by a movement of the Gulf Stream. So the reason hydrates are melting in this very vulnerable zone between 450 and 700 metres is because of temperature change. What we're proposing, and this is why the research is novel and new, is we think people have been looking in the wrong place. We've actually shown that the, the methane can migrate from the deep ocean 
all the way up to near the shelf, going past this zone of 450 to 700 metres, and bubbling up at, a shallower, at shallower locations. It sort of bypasses that vulnerable zone, going right from the deep ocean to the shallow, from, a, from a one or two kilometres depth right up to 300 metres depth, water depths, bypassing this vulnerable zone that most scientists have focused on for the last 10 or 15 years. Well, this is alarming. How could methane travel so great distances underground? Well, under the sea, uh, as the sediments get laid down, as they come out of deltas and are distributed into the oceans, they can form quite uniform layers of sediment. And in those layers, some of the layers are sandy, and therefore they provide a natural permeability which is the ability for fluids to move through uh, a rock unit. It's effectively the natural plumbing that exists underneath every single continental margin around every single continent on, on planet Earth. Now, this particular region, the margin is very simple. It's not disrupted by any significant faults or folds, and therefore the original sedimentary layers are probably connected from the deep ocean to the shallow. One of the things we... So, the, so when you release the methane in the deep ocean, 200 metres below the seabed, for example, it can migrate upwards towards the shallower regions until it gets to this magical depth of around 300 metres where it has enough buoyancy to erupt through onto the, into the ocean. So simple margins where the geology is not disrupted by faults and other things, uh, the plumbing can create these long-distance migration routes, and that's what we found. For the current battle to save the climate, the essential question is, can methane bubbling up from the dark ocean bottom reach the atmosphere where it would warm the planet, or will it be captured by ocean water and organisms that eat methane? Yes, it's a very important question. There was some research published um, a few years ago which said that really, if the water's deeper than a four or 500 metres, the gas would have to come out at a very high rate in very significant, massive uh, fluxes because the gas would normally dissolve in the water column. So you need a significant chimney of gas uh, to get from the seabed, let's say, at 600 metres below, uh, below the sea surface, right up to the atmosphere. What's important about the research we've just published is that we've shown that the gas can migrate to shallower locations, bypassing this vulnerable zone where the hydrate's just below the seabed. And so these gas vents are actually 15 or so kilometres landward of any hydrate and they're at shallower depths at 300 metres, and they're big vents. Uh, the big pot marks, it does suggest that something significant happened there over the last million years, possibly over the last 18,000 years. So my view is that there will be places on Earth where this will happen. But it does take time for the temperature change in the ocean caused by climate change to penetrate down to 200 metres where the Hydrate is very susceptible in the deep ocean. And so a change we make today or 100 years ago would take some time 
to impact those hydrate reservoirs. If a quantity of escaping methane stays in the ocean, does that add to ocean acidity? Yes, it, it does. And that's, so even if this methane doesn't hit the atmosphere, get to the atmosphere, because the plumes have to be very big because the methane uh, dissolves in the water column, yeah, the, it would cause ocean acidity, uh, increases in ocean acidity. Um, so there's no doubt about that. You know, where we are as scientists, I don't think we really know yet how much is going to come from the different routes we've all established. There's many different papers on how this methane could get into the ocean and the atmosphere. What we don't really know is how much. Um, The latest research on the east coast of America has shown that it could be melting right now, but it's really uncertain how much will get into the water column and how much would reach the atmosphere. It sounds like all the carbon budgets and plans to decarbonize might need to speed up just to accommodate these large unknowns in a looming methane release. Is there any way to quantify that risk from methane class rates, and how does that add to the urgency to control human-made greenhouse gases? I don't know. I haven't done any research on the exact carbon budgets. I've really just been focusing on can I work out where it's come from under the ocean? And I think we've made some good progress on that. Um, but, yeah, this is, a, this is a worry. I believe I did read a research paper recently that said, despite the fact that on the east coast of the U.S., the Gulf Stream may have moved and started to melt methane hydrate, there is no um, additional methane that's being detected in the water column yet. So that's the last paper I read on it. But the exact budgets and how much is going to be flux coming into the atmosphere and the ocean and what that means for mankind, I, it's an area I, haven't, I just haven't researched. And I wish, you know, I had more hours in the day. <laughs> I'm a, in my role in Newcastle University as, a, as vice president for Global. And so, you know, this was a startling discovery for me where I got to dust off something I haven't done for a long time. And it's been an amazing experience. But I... Um, it sort of makes me realize that uh, research is the most exciting thing that you can do, particularly when you're working on topics like this. But I wish I knew more about how much is coming out and what that might mean for well, COP28 and the discussions that are taking place about around CO2 and other greenhouse gases such as methane. I don't know. I wish we all knew more about that. So more than a decade ago, two Russian scientists alarmed the world, suggesting a 50 gigaton release of methane from the sea was possible at any time. Uh, they required a landslide undersea for that to happen. Expedition ships were sent to the Arctic to find out more, including one funded by the Swedish Academy. But little came of that, really. And methane levels in the atmosphere are going up, but recent science finds the increase is coming mainly from tropical bogs, as they heat up. Where do you place your new research in this mix? Well, what what I think our research has shown is that there are parts of the continental shelf which, if if the geology is simple enough, these will be leak zones. These will contribute in the future. And I think what this has shown is that the hydrate reservoir, which is absolutely vast, Three and a half percent of it exists in this vulnerable zone, which is between 400 and 700 meters, uh, 450 to 700 meters water depth. What we're showing is that 96.5 percent of the hydrate reservoir, 
which is located in deep water, could contribute. If the margins are simple and you start warming the ocean, that thermal effect will penetrate down to the base of the hydrate reservoir, reservoir where hydrate is barely stable, and it will melt. And so what we're showing is this 96.5% of the 1,800 gigatons is accessible and it is vulnerable. No one knew that before. Now, other research in how you could release large volumes of, of methane hydrate from, for example, slope failures can contribute. I've never seen anyone sort of say X is going to come from slope failures versus the mechanism that we've published just in the last few days. But all of these routes are possible. What we don't know is their relative importance yet. When I retire in a few years' time, I will be... Well, I'm still working with some Chinese scientists on this. From the South China Sea, where they're drilling, they're drilling gas hydrates to see if they can produce them. Now, I, I'm not interested in that at all. But it actually, of course, again, accesses data and creates a data set that I can work on because I'm very interested in whether how this methane is going to leak out. When it, when it starts to leak out. From the University of Newcastle, we've been speaking with Dr. Richard Davies, and you can find links to the paper and his article in the conversation in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Richard, thank you so much for talking with us. Absolute pleasure. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Right. I need some brave boys and girls who aren't afraid to live outside the law of gravity. Families who like to sleep in tubes and push buttons. Adventurers like you. View of the gravity of the situation, believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times. Are you worried about crazy events? Do you think you're alone out there, perhaps the only sane one left? The specialization of images of the world is completed in the world of the autonomous image, where the liar has lied to himself. The spectacle in general, as the concrete inversion of life, is the autonomous movement of the non-living. Guy Debord We know now planet Earth cannot support 8 billion humans, all consuming resources, and creating the pollution that kills off other life and possibly our own future. No dictator or hero can intervene to save us, because those who benefit hold the ultimate weapons, the power of production, and the voice of media, and we play along with all of that. The spectacle grasped in its totality is both the result and the project of the existing mode of production. It is not a supplement to the real world, an additional decoration. It is the heart of the unrealism of the real society in all its specific forms, as information or propaganda, as advertisement or direct entertainment consumption. The spectacle is the present model of socially dominant life. It is the omnipresent affirmation of the choice already made in production and its corollary consumption. Gideboard. The crux of change is identified by Marxist theorists like the French philosopher Guy Debord. Our personal functions have been channeled to gather products which we use to build our unnatural identity. We are consumers. Some of us work to feed a specialized part to the machine, and that may be steel or video or user data. And are we feeling down or worried? New clothes or a new car will cheer us right up. Consume, consume, consume until we have no planet left to consume. What you need to do 
Ski DeBoord was born in 1931 and passed away in 1994. He wrote philosophic works, he made movies, and founded activist groups, often based in his home of Paris. Today we glance quickly at Guy's inspirational work, The Society of the Spectacle, published in 1967. The Paris revolts of 1968 quickly followed, and de Bourde was among those who occupied the Sorbonne University. What is the spectacle? Here is an English translation from the film version of Society of the Spectacle. In societies dominated by modern conditions of production, life is presented as an immense accumulation of spectacles. Everything that was directly lived has receded into a representation. The images detached from every aspect of life merge into a common stream in which the unity of that life can no longer be recovered. Fragmented views of reality regroup themselves into a new unity as a separate pseudo-world that can only be looked at. The specialization of images of the world evolves into a world of autonomized images where even the deceivers are deceived. The spectacle is a concrete inversion of life, an autonomous movement of the non-living. The spectacle presents itself simultaneously as society itself, as a part of society, and as a means of unification. As a part of society, it is the focal point of all vision and all consciousness. But due to the very fact that this sector is separate, it is in reality the domain of delusion and false consciousness. The unification it achieves is nothing but an official language of universal separation. De Bourd was also a founder of an influential French art and culture criticism movement called the Situationists. Anyone contemplating activism should learn more about them. In the Wikipedia entry for Situationalists International, we find, in de Bourd's terms, Situationists define the spectacle as an assemblage of social relations transmitted via the imagery of class power and as a period of capitalist development wherein, quote, all that was once lived has moved into representation, end quote. When the Industrial Revolution took flight in the 1830s, it was easy to see people's lives were rapidly redefined, literally to fit the needs of the machine. In the days before mass transportation, mill workers needed to live near the mill. They were moved, some forcibly, others by a desire for wages, from their homes in the countryside into row housing in a town which became a complex city. It was not just a physical move. The consciousness of the British lower class had to be trained to punctuality and detail in order to work with machines. Minds were reshaped to fit the needs of production. Later, Marxists developed that knowledge further. In a second stage, developing more in America in the 1930s, ideas from Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and Frederick Winslow Taylor enabled mass production of merchandise. The public had to be educated as consumers, and that was the role of advertising. De Bourde might argue consumers were needed to fulfill the capability of production. Drawing on De Bourde, we might guess a key to reprogramming human desires and ideas about ourselves is the subject must never awake to a new state or revert to an old one. Either would break the chain of production and social power. 
a separate state of consciousness, complementary to the needs of production and tied to it, has been created. It would replace the former direct experience of a lived environment by our natural selves, and it replaces it with the spectacle. These are not just circuses or a blockbuster movie everybody talks about and daydreams about. It is not just the media or social media. There is no single image for the spectacle, because it is a pattern of social behaviors allowing manufactured consciousness to replace the personhood innate to our species and possibly all species. Consider a modern human encountering a bear. The bear is not thinking about events on the other side of the planet and has never seen Seinfeld. The bear may have developed patterns of thought from parents or siblings, but we presume the bear is present to the immediate situation, which also contains a human, a strong stimulant. The human may at first be looking at an image in a phone, but looks up to see the bear and decides to record the encounter with the bear on the phone to post for friends later. Already, this is an extended event, possibly reaching thousands of others, stimulating their mental images and social responses for a bear. The human may not actually see the particular bear who is present, possibly with old wounds or distinctive ears. The human may be drawing on previously ingested images of bears, old news stories of killer bears, nursery rhymes of friendly childhood bears, all manner of things. Debord asks, How present are we, really? The false consciousness of consumerism, noted by many Marxist writers, has to be built on replicas of reality, and they are never specifically true. In fact, the spectacle depends on our ability to lie to ourselves. This recognition of social falsehood helps explain the domination of denial in our world today. In a world which really is topsy-turvy, the true is a moment of the false. Guy Debord, Society of the Spectacle, 1967 With more reading, we better understand how a majority of humans try to pretend a global pandemic violent threats to democracy, and climate breakdown are not happening. You can find various versions of Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle online. I will put links in my show blog at ecoshock.org. A bit of news, my full video course, Build a Geothermal Greenhouse in Your Backyard, is now available free for all Radio Ecoshock listeners. I recorded the whole process from bare ground through construction. I tried for a very low-energy all-season greenhouse in Canada through bitter cold and record heat. Help yourself at ecoshock.org or search YouTube for EcoShock Greenhouse Playlist. Repeat, EcoShock Greenhouse Playlist on YouTube for your free course on personal geothermal growing. See if it's for you. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to Radio EcoShock this week. And thank you for caring about our world. And finally, William S. Burroughs. Listen to my last words anywhere. Listen, all you boards, government syndicates, nations of the world, and you powers behind what filth deals consummated in what laboratory to take what is not yours, to sell out your sons forever, to sell
sell the ground from unborn feet forever. Listen to my last words, any world. What now, Brian? We should flee in terror. Yes, that would be the wisest course.